season two uh, it's great that you're joining us uh, my name's ben and i'm joined as ever by my co-host robin who is over there somewhere i'm over here somewhere yeah thank you lovely to be back lovely to have another interview today we are having less ben and robin which is not a bad thing and uh, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce to you this afternoon neil Tobman from down in sunny bristol neil hello hi it's lovely to be with you today my first time on this so i'm very excited Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, Neil, do you have a, a favourite dad joke for us? Yeah, I did. I actually trialled this with my boys at lunchtime to find out which one I should use. I gave them two options, and uh, I'll give you the winning one. Pressure's so, on now. <laughs> uh, let, let, Robin, you can be my stooge for this, I think. Robin, what did the left eye say to the right eye? I don't know, Neil. What did the left eye say to the right eye? Between you and me, something smells. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a crack. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, my boys did beg me. You know, they did say, "Dad, you're not funny," but I, I, I pushed through that. Ignore them. Yeah, Ignore exactly. Them. We need a leader. We need a leaderboard. I think we do. That's what we need. We need. <laughs> That'd be glorious. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Tell, tell us a little bit about your family. You tested your joke with your with your boys earlier. Um, tell us a bit about your family. So I have two sons. So Isaac is seventeen and in the first year of his A levels doing maths, further maths, physics and chemistry. And I got C's in my GCSEs in all of those subjects. And I obviously didn't do further maths. So I nearly failed basic maths. So he is doing that and he's much cleverer than me. And then I've got a boy in a year 10 who's in his first year of his GCSEs, um, who's a lot less enamored with school. So there's those two. And then my second wife, Susan. Okay, so um, you said that second wife, Susan, which then therefore implies at some point a first wife um what can you can you tell us uh tell us a story there fill us in on the details yeah so i met my first wife elaine um when i was well 18 years old but actually the first time she met me she thought i was the most obnoxious and rude person she'd ever met so she then ignored me for a year which um was a bit of a low point really uh, but after a year i managed to kind of wind up wear her down and at 19 we got together at Bristol University. Um, she was a medic, so after I finished my history degree, um, I did another year studying for a PGCE. And then after I taught for a year and she completed her degree, we got married at 23. So married at 23, had our first son, Isaac, at 30, second son, Oscar, at 32. And yeah, I just assumed we'd go through life together in decades. So um, we got married in our 20s, had children in our 30s. I assumed I'm currently in my 40s and we're getting the children ready to get out of the nest and fly and then empty nest in our 50s plus hopes and grandchildren in my 60s retire in my 70s and then we go hand in hand into the sunset in our 80s it seemed like a fairly basic straightforward plan to me but actually after elaine turned 40 we turned 40 within five days of each other just before christmas that year she came in clutching her stomach and was obviously in a lot of pain and um the long and short of it was within three days she was in hospital and was um, diagnosed soon after with bowel cancer and then about four or five weeks after that um, the diagnosis went from just she had bowel cancer to they tried to operate and they opened her up 
and I was um, waiting for the results of the operation and um, the consultant that was operating on her phoned me and said, where are you? I said, I'm just sitting in the hospital in the chapel. I'm just praying. He said, wait there. And he came down and sat opposite me and just said, look, Neil, I'm really sorry. There's nothing we can do for the cancer that she has. It's all over her ovaries. It's over her peritoneum. It's just everywhere. Um, we've taken out the main lumps. She will get better for a season, but she is going to die. And I'm glad he was that candid, but it was pretty hard to hear. Um, and she then lived with cancer for 20 months. She had 22 months, of, uh, 22 rounds sorry, of chemotherapy. Um, so we got into a new cycle of life where she would have chemotherapy and be very poorly for a week, have a second week where she was up and down, and the third week where she was just great. And we did all sorts of fantastic stuff together as a family during that time. And then gradually the cancer just took over it, ate her from the inside out. She was really thin, really skeletal. We needed more and more help looking after her home. We decided that she wanted to die here, not in the hospice. And so I had carers in and out a couple of times a day, just looking after her. Um, and then on the well, 14th of August, 2015, um, I'd gone to bed the night before and she'd barely been conscious all day. And I remember praying, just saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to miss the moment when she passes from this world into the next. And just feeling a real sense of peace from him that she would still be there in the morning. So I went and got six hours kit woke up and she was still breathing very shallowly next to me. So I rang the hospice and just asked the signs, you know, how close was she to the end? They said to test her hands and her feet, but it was still quite warm. And then her breathing changed again. So I yelled for the boys. They came, were playing on their Xbox downstairs. So I, I called them up, they're nine and 11 at the time. And they kissed their mum, told her they loved her. And I did the same and then she, she died. She passed from this world into the next. So yeah, that was the reason I don't have a first wife is that um, yeah, she died of cancer and nearly three years ago now I remarried a lady called Susan who's now the boy's stepmom. Thank you, thank you for being so so um, honest with us and um, I mean particularly this this podcast um, is dealing with being a dad and and particularly this season we're thinking of you know the, the, the storms and the seasons that we go through as parents and I think you've just described probably the the, the, the storm that most of us would fear most um just give just tell us how did you how, how did you begin to explain to your boys what was going on how did you talk to them how did how did you you know did you sit down were you were you blunt with them or you know just tell us about that i mean it's pretty hard in a way because it's just before christmas and so the boys are like you know their age they're really up for it and we kind of we went off to a friend of mine who's a photographer. We did a huge family shoot actually, just while we could. And the boys didn't know what was going on at that point. And we just took loads and loads of family pictures. And then I remember we got back and Elaine, my first wife said, come on boys, let's go upstairs. Let's go and sit on the bed. And she got out some of those Christmas treats some J2Os and some sweets and other bits and pieces. And um, I've written a card, which on one side explained her illness and on the back, what do we believe? And on the front, we just decided we'd explain the illness because at the time we didn't know how serious it was in terms of stages. The boys were, um, what would they have been? They'd have been seven and nine, or well, that sort of an age anyway. Um, and so they were old enough to understand some things. So a bit of maths wasn't going to hurt them. And the stages of cancer actually were quite helpful. So we said, look, cancer's in different stages. And we marked them onto this line for them. 
And at the beginning of the line, we kind of said, look, anyone could die any day. We all know that, you know, people do die, their accidents and things go wrong and they're unexpected. But basically, most of the time, we don't, we don't think about dying very much. But mummy's got a serious illness and we don't know how serious it's going to be. So it could be anywhere between about 25 on this line, which is quite serious, but treatable, all the way up to 90. We said 90 to 100 is actually the dying phase. That's the point where the doctors can't do any more, where God might still work a miracle, but he might not. And actually, that's a very precious time. We know mummy's not going to get better, and we want to enjoy that time as much as possible. So we explained that to them up front, and it meant always we could say, well, where is mummy on the line now? The light, what's happening now? Where is she? And that was just a way of them. I think it helped to have something concrete to hold on to that we weren't trying to pull the wool over their eyes. We weren't trying to minimize how serious this was. And we did that even before we knew she had a terminal diagnosis. So that was quite hard in a way because we kind of laid out the whole parameters and suddenly you're saying, actually, do you know what? We're kind of already at 90 right at the start. You know, they're going to treat mummy. She's going to be here for a while, but they can't get her back down the line from this point. And actually... Um, I remember putting out a blog because we talked about this on, on the internet called 99, you know, when she was obviously very close to the end and just updating people. But that was how we updated the boys about her illness. And then on the back, we flipped it and just said, here are some things we know about God. You know, whatever our circumstances, we always know that he loves us. We know that whatever happens to mummy, she's safe in his hands. We know that his Holy Spirit is always with us, that he's a comforter, that when we feel sad, he's with us, that mummy and daddy might cry. And actually, it's quite normal for mummies and daddies to cry when something really serious and bad happens. And that's okay, and that's good. And then the last thing we did was we just put on there, and if mummy does die, then she will go and be with Jesus. And if you trust Jesus, when you're older, of course, you will also know that you can be with him one day too. So we tried to keep those two things together. We were always very honest about the illness. Uh, I think I knew a few other families where it was almost hidden from the children. You know, where it's almost like well, they won't be able to handle that. But I've seen the long-term damage that's done to people as they've got older. And obviously, if you've got very small children, you might need to explain it differently. But you can see these weren't nearly grown-up children. These were right at the heart of primary school. I think year three and year five at this point. So, you know, they they were young, but they could understand. And I think it helps you not to feel excluded. So everything we put on our blog, we'd explain to the children first. And that was helpful, I think. We wouldn't actually talk to my parents or to friends until the boys had got in from school and we'd updated them and dealt with their emotions. And then we would talk to other folks so that they never felt they were behind what other people knew. So it felt like we were a family going through this together, not mum and dad going through this with the children left behind. And, and Neil, just tell us, how did, how did the boys cope when Elaine died? How did you, you know, the, the, the kind of, the emotions that they had. Um, it was really different for different children. And I think it's really important. I hadn't really thought about how differently they might react. So the oldest fell to pieces. He was just about to start secondary school. It was less than three weeks till he went. And he got a bit of that alopecia thing where children get so stressed, their hair falls out. And I actually had a mate who lost all of his hair and his eyebrows after his parents died. I remember crying out to God, please don't let that happen to my boy you know, please don't let them have to go through the whole of his life, you know, visibly scarred by this. And the Lord was merciful to him and it didn't happen. But for the first few weeks of secondary school, you, there's a massive stress there anyway, just going to a new school. And he's trying to do that without his mum. You feel very vulnerable. You don't want to talk to anybody. 
yet you're meeting loads and loads of new folks. You're in the very early stages of grief. So he was just in shock. He was emotionally raw. It was just really tricky with him. Um, but he was able to kind of process that so he could still talk and you could still talk to him and pray with him. And I was really anxious, but he, I could see that he was learning um, how to think these things through. We set him up with a bit of counselling, a biblical counsellor. And again, that had happened before Elaine died. So they got into habits of kind of articulating how he was feeling. And he processed that way. My youngest went the other route. He just shut it out. It was as if nothing had happened. He spoke at his mum's funeral at um, nine years old, which was amazing, and paid tribute to his mum. He's not a public speaker. He'd never done that before. I thought, this is just weird. Um, but I was glad that he felt he could. Um, and then for about two months, it was as if nothing had happened. And then we went on holiday, just the three of us, to North Wales, and he just fell to pieces when we got back. It was almost as if all his resistance had just been said, this isn't happening to me, it's not happening to me. And then he plunged into about four months of deep depression. And honestly, in that everything that happened with Elaine's illness, I think that was one of the hardest things I ever faced. You know, I was literally putting him to bed at night, him still sobbing his eyes out because I couldn't comfort him at all. And him just crying out for his mum. And obviously, I just couldn't deliver. And as a dad, that's probably the lowest four months of my life. Yeah, I bet. Mm. So how... How did you get through that? Give us some hope. Yeah, I guess first and foremost, it was that we genuinely believed that we would see Elaine again. So they might not see their mum for, I don't know, six, seven, eight decades maybe, but they will see her again. And we've always kept that there and that she's not forgotten them. You know, Christian hope is so different to every other hope. You know, she remembers them very clearly. She'll be delighted to see them, you know, and... um. I think that's really important for a child to know that their mum hasn't forgotten. She doesn't love them any less just because she's not with them. We can't talk to her. We didn't encourage any of that. But we can look forward to that day where we're reunited as a family. And it's not our, our only hope, but it is part of our hope. And it's one of the joys of being a Christian, I think, is knowing that those people are safe with Jesus and you will see them again. And so we kept that going. We also tried to have fun. So... Um, Elaine was really upfront about death. She wasn't afraid to die and she wasn't afraid to look death in the eye. So she knows what a hopeless bloke I am. So after she died, I found she put all the paperwork that I needed to sign in the event of her death in order with post-it notes on it saying, sign here, sign here, don't lose this, make sure you do this. This is under the cupboard here, find that, put it in here, post it. I literally was stamped addressed envelopes because I'm such a complete dingbat when it comes to organising things. As an act of love, she just tucked it and pulled it all out. And she had also created memory boxes for the children. So she had written numerous messages and just encouraged the boys as often as they needed to, to open those up and have a look through. She put photo albums together of things we'd done since her diagnosis. And we'd had so many good times. And they're just full of good memories, full of good times. Say to the boys, much you need to do that. And both boys at times would just go up to their room, close the door, look through, shed a few tears, but it became a way of just them remembering their mum and enjoying what she'd meant to them. So I think, yeah, that long-term perspective and just those good things, but also day-to-day -day good times. You know, just because someone's died doesn't mean you have to be permanently miserable. You know, you might feel sad a lot of the time, but there's children also flip-flop, don't they, very quickly from life is terrible to life is amazing. You just see that on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And even in grief, children do that more than we do as adults. We can tend to get low. And there was a point where Ross got very low. But Elena really said Saturdays are really hard for bereaved families. So you'll be fine on Sunday. You've got church. Monday to Friday, you've got school and work. Saturday's normally the day. So she had bought three season tickets for Bristol City. So the day after she died, she died on the 14th. On the 15th, we went to our first family game down at Bristol City. And that became a thing that we did. Another local family scooped us up and we used to have lunch with them and then all walk down to the game together, then go back to theirs afterwards often and play games. And so Saturday became a really lovely, safe day with our friends. Um, and that was on Elaine's initiative. So, yeah, those different things, I think, gave us hope. So I, I guess and most of us won't necessarily face something at that stage of life, um, but we may well know um you know dads because who do um did it did anything happen uh whilst you were going through this that, that was unhelpful how were people helpful yeah you know, I, I guess what i'm getting is how can we help guys that we know who might be facing a similar a similar kind of thing i think it's working out where you fit for them so for some it's not an easy time to make new friends but if you're already a, a good friend of this person don't pull back. You know, make sure you give them a call. See if they want to come over. They're going to find a safe space. They're going to find a few safe people where they can just fall to pieces or, um, yeah, just not feel like they've got to work too hard. Grief is exhausting. So what you really need is someone who you know, their kid, your kids are going to be happy with them. So with me, my brother's first wife died and he was, I became, my first wife and I were some of his go-to people. He'd often come round to us. As soon as the children were happily playing, he'd always have a coffee when he came and raid my crisp collection and eat way too many of them. So I'd have some crisps, have half a mug of coffee, and before I know I'd find him fast asleep on our sofa. And the reason was just because he was whacked. And once he knew the children were well looked after, he could just crash, feel safe, Philly didn't have to do the heavy lifting for an hour or two. And likewise, after um, Elaine died, I found that was, a, that was a safe relationship. And there were other friends, close friends, who you just thought they didn't expect too much of you. You know, I had friends come on holiday with me. Again, sometimes I wanted to go with just the boys, but sometimes in the evening, you just want some adult company. You just want someone that you can just enjoy being with or watch something with and I was very grateful to friends who were prepared to either come over for an evening and watch the football or even go on holiday with us as a family so it'd be just the three of us and maybe four or five of them but it just it was it felt you feel quite so small as a family you felt you really did have some other connections and it also meant the boys got some female company which I think was is really important you know that the boys actually had um, women that they could kind of relate to and just that different interaction that you know men and women have with, with children, I think, is really important. Mm. Well, as we, I mean, you know, that's really helpful. Um, uh, as we kind of begin to wrap things up, what uh, if there are guys out there <coughs> who are facing something similar? Um, why don't you leave us with some some good news, some hope? They may be thinking, "I can't, I can't do this. I can't face this." How can how can they keep going? <laughs> well, I think if I can do it, pretty much anybody can. I remember feeling exactly that when my brother's first wife died. She was 35. He was left with um, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And I remember one time saying to him, you know, I just don't know how you do it. I just don't know how you cope. 
And um, that was before Elaine was sick, before anything happened to me. But I was just looking at it, thinking, how does any guy keep going? You know, it's my worst nightmare. And I remember him saying to me, Neil, basically, God's grace, God's strength is like manna. You get just enough for each day. And I thought, that's a really helpful perspective. And I think if you are out there and you, you know, people are listening to this and you're really struggling, it's very easy for us to run ahead. It's very easy for us to, to worry about kind of how we're going to cope over the months. Actually, when you're really in the heat of the battle, it's one day at a time. It's just enough for each day. Try to make each day as good as you can. Um, don't worry if it doesn't go as well as you'd hoped. You know, God's got it covered. And he loves us at our weakest and our worst. And actually, he loves our children. And they're safe in his hands. I think that's what I've really seen with my boys. Is I've not been a great dad. At times, I've really struggled to balance work and grief and, you know, just being there for them. And I haven't always got it right. But the great thing is, God's in control of the whole mess and the situation, and he's promised to see us through. Neil, thank you so much uh, for being honest. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's a real help um, to, um, to dads out there who perhaps are going facing the same thing, going through the same thing. Um, and uh, if that's you, do get in touch. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, do email us at everydaydadding at gmail.com or uh, uh, get in touch via the, the form at um, everydaydadding. Uh, thanks for listening today, um, Neil. Thanks for joining us. And uh, from me, it's goodbye. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.